Well, welcome, Susan Marino. You are head of school at Lafayette Prep Academy. Uh, currently executive director. Executive director. And James, Dr. James Schultz, um, uh, you're here in what capacity? <laughs> well, I'm a fellow at the Show Me Institute, but I'm an associate professor at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, where I'm also the chair of the Educator Preparation and Leadership Department. So and I think also that's a lot. On Susan Marino's dissertation committee. Oh, nice. Soon to be Dr. Susan Marino. Um, well, I think it's a good uh, mix that we've got here today because people ask me as an education researcher, what is going on this school year? And I go on the radio, what's going on? I'm like, I know what I read, but James, you're a parent, you're the spouse of a teacher, Susan, you're running a school, you're much better positioned to let people know what's going on this school year than I am. Um, so really, Susan, what can you tell us? Like, is your school in person or virtual? We started the school year fully virtual and we are transitioning in October to bringing in our kindergarten through third grade students right at about the quarter mark. So uh, the, it's gone really well, I think, with the virtual plan. I think we had a lot of time, you know, there was that emergency march to the end of school year, and then... Uh, and what did you do for that? Just... I would say we actually, uh, the joke in the school is that I was calling it a lot sooner than most folks, I sent our staff home on, well, our family's home on spring break before everybody knew we were shutting down. We had actually already developed a two-week plan. At the time, we thought it was going to be a two-week problem, not a, you know, year or however long problem. So we developed a two-week plan that we sent home with kids that was basically, so if we have to close and make an emergency closure for two weeks, this is what we would shift to. And it was kind of an evergreen plan that you could shift to at any given time. And then we just had it go home so that whenever it happened, we were ready. Well, I think we went home on Friday and it was that by Saturday and Sunday, everybody was saying, okay, I think we all need to shut down and we should shut everything down together. And so we had our kids go through spring break, but then they already had the materials at home with them and never had to actually come back in except for if they were in need of devices or other things. And so, so did you do Zoom and all that? Zoom, Google Classroom, or? Well, so our initial piece was we had sent home paper products. We had sent home the books and the paper products, just thinking it was a quick kind of stopgap thing. Sure. And then once we realized it would be a little bit longer, we used that for the first week. So they had the, what they needed for the first week. And then that gave us then that week and a little more time to really set up what our schedule was going to look like and set it up so that they would then be able to start going into the Zoom and into the virtual learning at at that time. And so we shifted pretty quickly into a virtual program that way. We, I think, you know, what we sent home for the two weeks, we thought it would last two weeks. We were a little ambitious and that actually was enough work probably to keep them for a few weeks because- Oh yeah. Yeah, I think what we're finding is that work virtually, learning virtually takes a lot more time and effort. And I think, you know, you mentioned James is a parent also. I'm also a parent, I have a middle yeah. school student in my house and um, everything just takes a lot longer and a lot more and so I think we learned that lesson really quickly because what we sent home for what we thought was two weeks of work all of a sudden was not two weeks. Yeah. Of work, so. so what are you doing now? You're uh, Again virtual like synchronous teachers are on the zoom. How are you doing it? It's a blend. It's so we also learned in the, the initial closure and I think this is true with everything. You're trying to meet these 
incredibly oppositional needs. You have some families who want their kids 100% online, looking at the camera, taken care of by their teachers all day. Yeah. And you have other people who say, no, 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 that's too much screen time. We really need a lot of breaks and we need flexibility and we can't, we can't do it at 9 a.m. So we need to be able to do it at 6 p.m. because we're at work and we can't support our kids. So we learned very early the need for an immense amount of flexibility and the, the need to be able to make your program accessible to people in a multitude of ways at any time. So uh, we do have, a, so our program has elements of synchronous learning where the kids are live with their teachers or small groups. We've yeah. specifically shifted to a lot more small group because it, it's a lot more meaningful to have a group of four or five, six-year-olds in a reading group than it is 20. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, so we have certain offerings that are synchronous, but for the people that can't attend in real time, we then record them and they can do them asynchronously later. And then we have certain elements that are completed independently or asynchronously anyway. And that has seemed to work out really well, providing everybody what it is they need, but then also providing a lot of flexibility so that people could um, do it in their own time frame or as the families had the time to support kids. I mean, quite honestly, it sounds like a lot more work for teachers and executive directors. It's like, you were saying this, right, James, about your wife. It's like, now you're teaching three right. so different ways. My wife is a, is a high school Spanish teacher. And you know, between Susan and me, I think we've got every modality covered. So, so my two older children go to the school where my wife teaches. And right now they're in a blended model where half the kids go two days a week, half go the other two, uh, another two days a week, and then everyone's supposed to be virtual on Wednesdays. And, and so every day she has to plan in-person instruction for the kids at school. She has to plan asynchronous learning for the kids at home. And then on Wednesday, she has to plan synchronous learning for all the kids together. And so she's doing all three things. And it's been a ton of planning, much more than she says she's ever done in the past. And what do your kids think of it? <laughs> I mean, to me, it just sounds confusing. I would have to wake up and be like, okay, it's Tuesday. I got to get up and go to school. Or yeah, it's, it, I like, think it's, it's been, uh, it was hard at first, I think, to get in the swing of things. But then I think once they did, the school district has now voted that they're going to be going back fully in person. Okay. And I think that they're kind of disappointed because they enjoy sleeping in five days and getting up too. Right? It's kind of like reverse weekend, right? You know, used yeah, to yeah, be yeah. school five days, you, you sleep in two days. Now they sleep in five days and they get up two days. <laughs> so what do you think... Susan is going to be the long-term impact of this because people have asked me like there's got to be some permanent changes here and I think to me one thing that will last will linger is the parental involvement piece just because this going back it's it, this is probably not a good analogy but you know before we had WebMD or whatever you went to the doctor he said you got this it's cancer you know and and you just that's that's all you knew now we all have decided to research our own symptoms and now we're super involved in our in our medical care in ways that people didn't used to be and I feel like now that parents have been put into like the driver's seat on this I just don't see it going back to where parents and of course you're in a charter school so it's your parents are already have minimally made the decision to to enroll their students in your school but I just think even parents who just put their kids on the school bus at their assigned public school I don't think we're going to see that come back what do you think um, I, I will say my 
family community is incredibly engaged and involved. So I am fortunate in that way, but they are tired. Yeah. They can't wait until we can take back over. And so I think there are elements that will remain as far as we've always done things where we do parent education nights where we teach them math the way we teach their kids math. Okay. So that when they go home and they complain about how math is done differently now than it used to be, they know what, how we talk about math now than when we were kids. Um, so I, I think they'll always stay involved, but I think there really is this new appreciation for how hard it actually is to be an educator. And you talked about things taking longer. They do take a lot longer this way and providing all these different modalities. And I think the parents are really ready to give the reins back to us, I'll be honest. I, I think you're right. I, I do hear that too. And it's like, they like just open the schools up and, and please, you know, we realize some people are like, well, if you're only, the kids are only actually learning two or three hours a day. I'm like, we've created this institution that we all depend upon so that the rest of us have jobs. And, you know, we depend upon this institution for uh, social reasons and safety reasons and all kinds of reasons. And when that goes away, that is also very jarring. So what do you think will be the long-term impact of this all the schools shutting down on the same day. I do think that one of the things that's come out of it that's been really great is this natural incorporation of executive functioning skills for students at a very young age, this release of um, dependence on their parents in essence. You know, I think- Can you this, explain that? I'm, so I'm there, there is, I don't know how this is gonna come off to all of the parents, but I'm gonna say it anyway, because I talk about it a lot. The parental generation now is very involved in protecting their kids and, and doing a lot of things for them that their kids are actually capable of doing independently. And I think that this situation has forced them away from that a little bit because there's just too much to be done in a day. Yeah. You have to start recognizing that your child can actually manage their own school materials and their own assignments and their own calendars. They're very capable of doing these things. They're very capable of organizing things themselves and making decisions about what the highest priorities are in that moment. What do I actually have to get done now? Instead of looking to someone else and saying, what should I do? How should I do it? Yeah. And so the kids, I think, are developing this really uh, these skills that a lot of us maybe didn't learn until later in life when we were forced out of our parents' houses and into college and we now had yeah. to manage our own schedules and all of those kind of things. Our kids are, they are managing their own calendars. They are emailing their own teachers. They are managing so much more in their lives because they can and they're capable of it. But for a lot of times we built these structures that we said, oh no, they're, they're too little. They can't do these things. They can and they're doing it and it's been impressive and their ability to use technology to push those things forward has been impressive so i think that will remain that i hope that will remain personally i also think that the teachers have really come to understand that the use of technology and yeah. putting everything into technology as a platform and a communication tool and really centralizing those things has had immense benefits especially in the areas of being able to provide real-time feedback to students and families and those things, I, they will not leave our school. And I don't know if that's true across the board, but that is true for us. There's my child right now, probably with some random questions. So. Um, James, are you in, in your program where you're teaching teachers at, at UMSL, do you think that we need to like be teaching every teacher about how to teach virtually and synchronously and asynchronous? Like that's a whole skill set that I think a lot of, I mean, 
I'm old, so I can say it. A lot of older teachers were probably like, I don't want to use Zoom. I don't want to use Google Classroom. Like, I don't want to do those things. But now it's yeah. reality. You have to. Yeah. Well, we're starting to do a lot of those things. I mean, first off, from our own side, our Center for Teaching and Learning did a great job right up front putting programs together for faculty to learn how to put their own courses online and to do all that sort of stuff. And so they're training the faculty. And I think a lot of our college education folks are doing those things for teachers as well, where they're trying to model some of these things. We also ramped up a few programs or courses for teachers to take in terms of using technology. Now, how much we need to embed you know, this into our curriculum? Do we need to change our curriculum to say every teacher needs to take an online teaching class? I don't know if we need that specifically, but I do think we need some exposure and training throughout, at least maybe embedded in courses so they're seeing these things. Um, but you know, we're, it's just a crazy time for everyone. And as Susan was talking about, you know, the, the uh, involvement of parents and, you know, you're asking about what's the impact. I mean, the way I see this is there's no one thing, right? This thing impacts people in so many different ways. You talk to some folks and they're discovering that they love having their kids at home and they love, you know, so you have this big movement of a lot more homeschoolers, right? You find some people who say, I can't stand this, get my kids back at school. And so you've got this increased appreciation for teachers. You've got, you, know, you have just all kinds of different things happening because it impacts people in different ways. And so it's hard for me to see one uniform sort of thing coming out of this other than a bunch of people reassessing what's going on and, right. and possibly making daily. different decisions. Right, right, right. So, daily reassessing of... Yeah, and so you see lots of different impacts, not just one uniform impact. So you, like Susan's saying, you see more use, of, you have teachers suddenly forced to use more technology. And so, yeah, teachers are probably gonna be using more technology in the future. You have students, uh, as Susan's saying, you, man, my daughter has never had to manage a calendar before, but we're constantly on our, you check your calendar. <laughs> Like, uh, so students doing these things, but also communicating with teachers, as Susan's saying, in different ways. But then you have teachers being overwhelmed by the number of emails they're getting. <laughs> so, so you have all these different things that are happening. And so it's just, to me, when people talk about the impact of COVID, it's like, well, the impact on whom? Or the impact... Yeah. Like what type of, you just have so many different things happening. And so for me, it's hard to grasp what's the one thing that's going to happen. Do you, think, you, uh, what, you think we'll still have snow days? That's why I was about to put my flag in the ground. Is we better <laughs> still have some dang snow days. I, I think what will happen is that some school districts will still put a handful of snow days in the calendar, but they'll yep. also put in a handful of online days in yep. the calendar. And so that, you know, pe people want to have snow, even teachers like some snow days every now and again. <laughs> so, you know, I think that school districts will still put a handful of those in the calendar. They build them in, right? So if you miss three days, it's built into the calendar. It's nobody missing yep. anything. But then you have some additional days that if we go past our minimum amount, now we can move to online. And I think that those will be built in. So at least that's my hope. That's where yeah. I'm putting the flag. Don't kill snow days. Well, um, 
Yeah. I, I used to work for the federal government. We had mandatory telework requirements. Like we had to telework so that if the government ever had to shut down for any reason, we could all still be working. So they sort of built that in. But I'd be, be curious to know about your um, summer, Susan, because I'm guessing that you were really busy figuring out the fall. And we've talked a little bit about, you know, I, I'd be curious to know if this is the case with your school, but some um, school districts have collective bargaining agreements that the teacher's first in-service day is literally like five days before the start of the school year. So it's not like teachers could even work on this all summer. I'm sure it was on their minds. I'm sure they were thinking about it, but the actual work to figure out how this was going to happen, you know, was a very limited time frame for a lot of teachers. Did you do that with your teachers as well? It was an immense amount of work and it continues to be an immense amount of work because it changes every day. You know, you, you think you've designed a plan and then something changes and then you have to redesign or you realize that it's going to be on a different timeline. And so we have a very active teacher community and we, we aren't union, so we don't have a collective bargaining uh, agreement, but we started planning with our staff. Uh, we started a restart task force with our staff in late April. And then also we had a restart parent committee that started more towards the end of the school year because they were so overwhelmed just in general, we didn't want to overwhelm them with more. But yeah. we did it all throughout the summer. We met weekly and did the planning together. And it was voluntary. The teachers didn't have to do it. They wanted to do it because sure. they wanted some say in what it would be and how it would roll out. And so we still have very regular meetings with our staff and our families about this is what we're thinking. What do you think about it? We survey almost every week. Uh, families, students, and uh, staff, and get, because the, you know, I can survey them one week, and they'll say, everybody should stay virtual, and then the next week, everybody's ready to come back, and then, you know, one week, it's that you should do, you know, a hybrid model, it's just, it, the scene changes so quickly, and I think um, that has been another piece that, you know, you talk about changes, and one of the reasons I feel like we fared well is because we're small, and because mm. we're really adaptable and we're so used to change because we're a young organization that I think it's forcing some of the larger, maybe clunkier districts. Be, I don't mean clunky offensively, but I think I it's clunkier because there's such bigger systems to move that I think it's forcing them to be more quickly adaptable, which yeah. could be really great because sometimes you see in the larger districts, it's really, it takes a long time to make change because it's so hard to move the system that now they're having to make those shifts so quickly that maybe they're learning that if they realize something isn't working or it's not in the best interest of kids and families, that they could make those shifts faster in response to needs potentially if, uh, if something was warranted like that. So maybe that's something else that could come out of it. I do know that um, there's a researcher at the University of Washington who's been collecting data on the largest districts in the nation, what they did when they shut down, what they're doing to reopen, etc. And she did find that the charter schools were much more adaptable and they were able to create new plans for their parents faster. And, you know, a lot of districts, I think, did the two-week homework packets, but some districts, a lot in Missouri, stuck with two-week homework packets through the end of the year. And kids just dropped off one packet and picked up the next packet because, you know, they, they didn't have the capacity to do what you said and, and make changes quickly. One thing I'm wondering is, have you seen this movement of students? Are you seeing students trying to come into your school and students leave your school? I feel like because there's so many uh, 
different things that parents want. Like there's all these different sets of needs this year. Like you mentioned, someone to be virtual, someone to be in, in person. Are you seeing um, kids move around? Not in any kind of significant numbers, no more significantly than ever. We had a couple of students choose to homeschool for the year. And we've had a couple of students that transitioned to parochial schools because they were open at the beginning of the year. Yeah. But, you know, those kind of transitions happen every year anyway. So in no larger numbers than ever. Um, I think people really have been great and trusted us and, um, and have just stuck with us through it knowing that, or just trusting we'll do what's best for kids. And the truth is, I don't think anybody really knows what's next. So you can make a move to another school, but they might have to close in a week anyway. And then you move to a school where you don't know anyone and your child has no connections with the kids or the teachers. And but now you're in the same situation you would have been in anyway, except now they have no connection to anybody. Yeah. So I think people are kind of sitting tight with it for the most part. Do you think that it's possible to... I know this is probably what you're thinking about every day, but is it possible that you can get through this without learning loss? I feel like it's been the craziest six or nine months. I, I just wonder if it's possible. Are you doing diagnostic testing or like mm -hmm. to try to figure out? Yeah, we have, we, we had already planned a shift, which internal diagnostic tool we use. And so we're in a major shift in that way, but it's a much more robust and detailed tool. So we're really excited about it. So we did our baseline here at the beginning of the year. Um, I think there is some learning loss. We feel like our virtual program has really knocked it out of the park. I'll be honest. That's great. Especially grades four through eight. Okay. I think the big risk for us was in the younger grades initially, because trying to engage a five-year-old. I can't even you know, is a very different thing. And, you know, and the other thing is it's very like small snippets. So anybody who teaches a five-year-old knows you don't sit them in a class for 45 minutes and, and, you know, focus on the same thing for 45 minutes. You do, you know, 10 minutes here, and then you maybe take a brain break and then you do 15 minutes here, and then you, you know, do some kind of different activity. Well, when you do that at home, the parents have talked about this, they lose momentum. So yeah. you have them in a Zoom meeting and then they go off and they do something independently and then the parent has to fight with them to get back into the Zoom because they're really excited about what they're doing over here. And so it's just really hard to make those same transitions naturally at home, uh, which is why we're bringing our younger kids back. The fourth through eighth graders, I think are doing really, really well. We have impressive engagement. We've been tracking uh, how often they come to our live sessions and work completion to better understand, you know, who's coming, who's not, which things are they engaging in and which things are they not. And we've had really strong uh, attendance. I don't want to call it attendance because it's not attendance as we know it, but engagement. I think the, the question will be when we do our mid-year assessment, what does it look like from now until then? And, and will we see the same kind of gains we would have seen otherwise? Yeah. But, I, you know, and I also think when you talk about gaps and when you talk about the disparities amongst students, you're, you're going to see those things widen in certain areas as well. I think. You know, if you look at the research on virtual education, I mean, most people recognize that on average, virtual schools do worse than yeah. traditional, traditional schools in terms of producing learning gains. And so when I look at the situation, I mean, sounds like what Lafayette Prep is doing is, is good and I hope that it does bear out in the, in, the, in the stats, but we have, you know, thousands of school districts that many of them had never done anything virtual 
and all of a sudden moved and went to virtual education. And many of them, because they didn't want to contract with a provider, which would cost money, or they didn't want to send students to the, a state virtual course, they developed their own programs in record time. <laughs> and I, I don't have a lot of confidence that all of those programs are going to be great, right? Uh, you know, we have these virtual schools are schools that are designed to be virtual where the teachers are only teaching virtual settings. They are trained in this, they're developing their curriculum around this, and they spend time doing it with, you know, oftentimes millions of dollars of funders developing their curriculum. And now we have people just entering, having a couple of months maybe, if that, to prepare for virtual programs. And so some may be great and may be doing it well, but I'm afraid many will not be doing so great. And I, I'm not optimistic overall for the state or for you know the, the nation in terms of how uh, impressive the learning gains will be. I, I think that we're not going to see significant growth in, in over the past year or so. I think you're right. And I think that last year was the first year that we had um, Missouri state test scores that we could compare to the year before. So we finally got one set of longitudinal data. We had two years we could compare. We didn't do it last year. I'm, I'm fairly certain we're going to do map testing this year. The federal government's not going to give any waivers like they did. Um, those won't be comp comparable to much. And I do think there could be some movement of students. It'll just make it all like, a, you know, hold har harmless type of thing. But I think it's going to be five years from now before we really know what happened during this pandemic in terms of student academic loss, if there is loss, uh, unfortunately. Oh, and, you know, Susan, this attendance thing that you briefly mentioned, what's going on with that? How are you guys taking attendance? Oh, attendance was, when you talk about the work of getting ready for the year, sorting out what attendance meant and is for districts and schools before the school year was a very, it was a stressful point. Uh, so our schools treated differently than traditional public schools, is that right? Somewhat, although they did pass an emergency rule that we could also use the previous year or previous two years WADA uh, in calculation as kind of a floor for our attendance if for some reason we had really low attendance this year. It doesn't necessarily help my school because we're a growing school, so using last year's WADA is not that helpful because I have more kids this year, but WADA um, being they did adjust for people who oh I'm sorry listening to a podcast WADA meaning the number of kids who show up every day let's just call it that yeah yeah that, uh, and so uh, they did pass a rule that ultimately created a little equity there between the charters and the districts in okay. that regard in particular there are other inequities financially that I won't get into but uh, <laughs> uh, but <Why> not? <laughs> so attendance for us. They we're not, because our kids are fully virtual, if the kids stay fully virtual for the whole semester and they qualify under the MOCAP regulations, then if they complete the course, then you're paid at 94% of their attendance rate. Once they start attending on site, then they transition into a formula that is tied to the fixed blended instruction model, or like a lot of people would call the hybrid model. Mm -hmm. And in that model, their attendance is calculated based on the number of days they're on site. So let's say I do a model where the kids are only on site for two days a week. 
And then their attendance for the whole week will be calculated based on just those two days a week. So if the child is absent for one day of the week, we get 50% of our funding for the week. There and you don't want children showing up with coughs or fevers, right? Right. So there so are going to say default. Yeah, there are a couple of things they've put in place. We fought a little, uh, well, I was pretty vocal, I guess, um, but fought pretty hard on getting something in place so that when we were quarantining kids, it didn't count against us or for us, right? You don't want it to count for you as if they're there, but you don't want it to count against you either. So if you quarantine a group, then you can basically transition them into something else where it doesn't count for or against the on-site attendance percentage. Ultimately, the group was, it either had to be a bus roster or a class roster. Wow. We ultimately got them to say anything two or more is a group, which was a big help. Then if you have to close down a school or a classroom, then that also shifts to a different mechanism, which then doesn't count for or against your on-site attendance percentage. The challenge is basically then every child by the end of this year will have their own calculation related to attendance. So it could be that my on-site attendance rate would have a denominator of 50, while James would only have one of 20 uh, because of whatever scenario he's in. And so I'm not fully sure how all of this is going to track forward. It doesn't necessarily apply to us right now because everybody is virtual. So we're still governed under kind of the mocap guidance where if they complete the course, now that has to be done by the semester. So, so how do you, how do you know if a third grader completed the course? Like how do you, a first grader? So I think what worries me is I see a lot of the uh, not so high performing districts sticking with all virtual because if they do all virtual for the year and you say the first grader completed the course, whatever that is, they're automatically going to get 94% attendance. And as we all know, that's how funding happens, right? So kind of the easy way to go, if you want to make sure you get your funding is just stay virtual, say everyone completed the course, because there's no, there's no end of course test for first grade. And then you're, you're 94%. That just doesn't, what do you think, James? I don't know. Yeah, as, as Susan Reno was talking, Weird I incentive. was thinking the exact same thing. I don't know what the attendance rate is in, you know, say Normandy, Riverview Gardens, uh, St. Louis Public Schools, or even Kansas City. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm willing to bet it's not 94%. Yeah. <laughs> and especially so, especially virtual attendance, right? I'm pretty certain that's not 94%. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it would. In most of these cases, if they stay virtual, it would increase their recorded attendance rate and increase their funding. I hadn't thought of that before this conversation, but I think you're right. What if the incentive was reversed, right? What if they said, if you're going to be full-time virtual, we'll let you have 75% attendance? Wouldn't that have sort of pressed schools to reopen? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because staying closed is... I mean, I, I've already was concerned that some school districts are staying closed to not have to deal with the um, students with disabilities, not to deal with like how they're serving everybody. It just seemed kind of like a punt to just say, we'll just stay virtual, even if it doesn't work for our parents. Um, and, and we'll see in December if any districts, how many districts have done that. But to me, that seems sort of like a punt. And so but it feels like it, it could. I mean, it is a factor, right, that you could get more money, the attendance calculation would be higher. 
But I doubt many school leaders are making a decision just based on that. I, I think that uh, lots of other things come into play. I think especially parent voice is coming into play. Actually, what I see happening is, or this is, you know, I've got anecdotal evidence of this, and I think that it's, and so I think I'm right. But the anecdotal evidence is that more and more schooling decisions are not at all going to be based on facts. They're going to be based on emotions and, and parent voice. So in Winsville, for example, the, the board had laid out a plan that they had three phases. And this is basically every district in the area did this. Three phases are in-person, blended, and online, depending on where the COVID stats are. Before the school year starts, the superintendent moves the district to phase two, which is blended unilaterally. He can make the decision. Of course, there's parent outcry. And at the next board meeting, the board voted to take the authority. So the board could make the decision, not the superintendent. But they kept us at that phase two. Well, there were protests outside the you know, district office. There have been, been a lot of parents upset about this. And at the last board meeting, the board then voted to move uh, basically at the quarter to going fully in person. And it wasn't necessarily because metrics had changed or that COVID right. you know, looks better than it had. But I, I really think it was because of pressure. Um, I mean, teachers were feeling overworked with this blended model. Parents are feeling frustrated. Like you had all these complaints. And I think more and more you're going to see school districts making decisions uh, when they're, because of pressure that they're feeling. And I mean, of course, school leaders are always trying to do what in the interest of kids, but you have all these pressures. You have the pressures from community, you have the pressures from finances, right? All these things weigh on you. But I think ultimately, um, when you have, as we're seeing in the let them play protests in the St. Louis County regarding sports, like when you have this mobilization of parents demanding to have their kids in school, uh, it is hard for school leaders to fight against that, especially when board members uh, are elected as they are in lots of traditional public school districts. Yeah, and I didn't mean to suggest that these districts aren't doing what's in the best interest of, like, that they don't have the best interest of kids in their minds, but it's exactly what you said. The pressure, I think teacher union leadership is putting pressure on them to keep the teachers safe and not have them go to school. And when you see the parades of uh, headstones and teachers in body bags, you know, that, that whole thing, like, that also weighed on them a little bit. And then it just seemed like the path of least resistance against all that pressure could be to stay virtual, which I just think is, you know, not the best for most kids. It worries me, but. Yeah, I guess it depends on who, whose voice and pressure is loudest and whether or not the teacher's voice uh, through the unions and their organizations is loud and strong and unified, or if the parents are louder and stronger and unified. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because within both those groups, you have dissenting voices, right? There are parents who don't want their kids back in school. Right. And they've chosen many times, if the option's available, to do fully virtual. And there are parents who are adamant about having their kids back. And you can see the reasons for these things. I mean, but to the parent who has to work and can't be home with their kids, when Susan was talking about working with a kindergartner, I experienced that. Sitting on, like, trying to get my own work done when I have to make sure that they get on their Zoom meeting for 20 minutes and then they have a break and then they come back for another 20 minutes. So that, like, 
it's exhausting. And, and it really disrupts your work day, your own, the adult work day, let alone thinking about the kid actually learning stuff. And so you have to be able to see people's perspectives on this and recognize that some people are concerned about this virus and, and are, are really concerned about their health and well-being. Other people are really concerned about their livelihoods, right? Like, and what frustrates me is when people can't at all understand or see another perspective. <laughs> and and that's, that's what I hope we get more of, but I don't know if we will. Well, one month down, Susan, feeling good? We do. We feel like, kind of to piggyback your point, I don't know that it's what we would offer on site because it's not our first, or it's not our, um, our, the way that we planned instruction for the last, you know, eight years. Sure. But, um, but we do feel really good about what we're offering okay. virtually. And I also feel really good knowing that our kindergarten through third grade kids will be able to come back in and get the instruction they need. And I'm hoping that we are able then to transition to having that option available all the way K through eight uh, yeah. after that within the second semester. Um, so I, when I say, do we feel good? I, I think the hard part is everyone is really just exhausted <laughs> yeah. and tired. And, and the, you know, we're such a driven group of people. And when I say we, I mean all educators. Mm -hmm. Honestly, we really do go into this for the right reasons and, and want to do the right things for kids and families. And so we work incredibly hard and too many hours and, you know, sacrifice things in our own lives to make it happen. Um, and then we have that same frustration that when you say, I've put all this out there and I've done everything I can do, and it's still not as good as I think it could be if I could just have the kids here or if I didn't have to plan for virtual and on site at the same time and try to get to everybody everything that they need. So um, I think we're feeling really good about what we have, but I just, I do worry too about the teachers in this a lot. Um, I think there is a huge risk to losing what is already a short supply of teachers uh, because, you know, they're already an overworked population, overworked, underpaid population of professionals anyway. And now they're being asked to even do more. And in not, I will say my families in particular, I think have had an so much gratitude for the work that the teachers are doing and so much understanding, grace, and patience. But you don't hear that in the news. You don't hear people really saying, you know, hey, by the way, stop asking your teachers to do 10 times more than they're doing because just like you, they're at home with their own kids, <laughs> helping their own kids. And just like you, their work life is harder too. I mean, all of us have realized how much harder our work life is now, right? It's not easy to do this, everything we do in this new way of doing things. And so, I would love to see the national narrative have a little stronger voice in support of these people who take care of kids all day and put their heart and souls into it instead of assuming, you know, that they're just at home, you know, in their pajamas and happy to sleep in. They don't have to work as hard. They're working twice as hard. Yeah, I've heard that. They're tired and they're, and they're sad because they don't feel like they're doing it well enough. And, and they are. I honestly really do believe that they're doing the best that they can. But um, I would love to see people spread a little more love out there to the teachers for all they're going through right now. Noted. All right. Well, I know you're busy. It sounds like you're really busy. I appreciate <laughs> you taking the time to talk to us about how it's going. Um, I, you know, every person I bump into who is a parent, I have to get five minutes with them and say, how's it going? What are your kids doing? You know, I've, 
And I've heard everything from don't bring it up. I'm going to cry to, you know, um, it's been crazy, but kind of fun. So I, I just, I appreciate you giving us the perspective of a school leader because that's super important too. Can I have one more thing that I think really matters? Of course. I do think that there is a group that is loving this, that there are people who are loving this change. And so, you know, I'm a supporter of school choice in general. And I do think that there is something to be said about offering um, schools that are virtual. And I wouldn't necessarily do it in the way that we've done it in the state of Missouri at this point, uh, because the way we do it in the state of Missouri at this point is it's on the shoulders of schools to pay for it through mocap and we still also have to pay the on-site teachers so there's like this push and pull there financially but i do think that there is something to be said about developing really strong virtual schools that for those people that this really works for and making sure that those options are out there for people yeah i talk about florida a lot in this one but florida virtual school has been open since the 90s and it's funded like a school district so any student that enrolls in Florida virtual, you know, they have their list of school districts and that's one of them. And so the funding just goes from the state to the Florida virtual, which makes a lot more sense because um, in terms of like push and pull, you feel like you're paying for mocap for a student. Well, you are, you would pay for the virtual school, but it's like the funding goes through you and doesn't need to, it needs to just go straight there. Right. And then it affects the fact that like, I still have to do everything I have to do for the onsite school. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, so it just, and because we're limited on our enrollment, it doesn't really, it's a, it, it puts us in a major imbalance yeah. if it comes through our school. So I would love to see that done separately. Yeah. We have so much work to do in Missouri. Yes, we do. Keeps me busy. So yeah. much. <laughs> now we're about up. If we well, could not have pandemics, I could join you in the work. <laughs> well, thanks again for talking to us. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.